Agape love, which is our subject, was a new word to the world. That's a bit of a lie. It wasn't new. It was used by the Greeks, or known by the Greeks, I should say, for a while. But the Greeks hardly never ever used it. Agape really became God's word and uh, known to the world through Jesus Christ for the first time. If someone asked you what radar asked you, I'm not saying you're this old. Hold on. If someone asked what radar was in 1939, if it were you, well, bless you for being so old <laughs> and, and alive. Yeah. If someone asked what radar was in 1939, no one would have ever heard the term before. It wasn't a word. It's a derived word. Uh, became coined by the U.S. Navy in 1940 for the technology of radio detection and ranging. So radio detection and ranging is radar. The technology wasn't known before then. So the ability to bounce radio waves off of something and detect them back and find out how far away or something, uh, you know, I'm not particularly an expert at it. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, words like that, they become new. They are new. And so is agape. Agape is used by the Greeks, but hardly at all. Uh, and not in any meaningful way in which we could derive a, a definition of thought from the Greek world or from the Greek mind, uh, and not like the New Testament does. The first piece of literature that uses agape in any uh, significant way is the New Testament. And therefore, the definition of what agape, is, agape really is uh, derives from the New Testament and therefore derives from God. And the, the revelation of agape is in Jesus Christ, for sure, in, in him, in his person, in his work, and what he said and what he did. And therefore, agape becomes a new term. You know, before Christ, it's really not known what it is. Sadly, it's really not known what it is now, either, in, in many Christian circles. But that's not the fault of the Scripture. Scripture has revealed it. And so we continue in our study of it today. Let's open up in prayer. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13 in our main passage. And we'll begin with prayer and thank God for our time together to learn more about his love so that we may walk in it more deeply and in more accuracy and in more frequency. And for that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word, this word that's in 1 Corinthians 13, where your servant, the Apostle Paul, writes, which is basically a hymn to love. And that definition of love is in a place in your scripture that speaks to, um, really speaks to our souls and what type of people we are. Uh, what type of people the Corinthians were in general were not those that you were pleased with. That becomes our question as well. And therefore, Father, we ask that you give us the insight to answer that question truthfully and not lie to ourselves, but are we the type 
and lifestyle and conduct and thinking who are pleasing to you and therefore who worship you and you alone. And we thank you, Father, for your frankness, for your clarity, so that none of us can, if we're honest with you and humble before your word, we can't really lie to ourselves. And so, Father, thank you for the clarity of thinking and, and truth that comes from your word through uh, the Holy Spirit who is in us. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So, uh, Paul's hymn of love, which is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Uh, we might, and, and so we start here uh, today with somewhat of a review because we don't want to forget the context that it's in. As we're looking at each individual word with a little bit of detail, with some detail, we can forget where we are. So, you know, you lose the forest for the trees. So we, as we're looking at individual trees, we kind of want to back off a bit and make sure that we understand what forest we're in. Uh, the context of 1 Corinthians 13 being between chapters 12 and 14 is in the context of spiritual gifts. Uh, and so in that context, we find that love, agape love, is critical to the function of spiritual gifts, which is really our function of service to one another. And I think Paul would have been really confused to hear this passage read at weddings, which it often is. He, if Paul was at a wedding and he said, why are they reading that here? It's what he probably his response would have been, because it has nothing to do with that. Chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, presents spiritual gifts in their God-given, hard-working, servant-living way. Each to the member of the body, each, has an, each is an individual member, each has a gift, but that gift is used to serve the body for the common good, and we're to use those gifts in our roles as humble, meaning that though we have different gifts, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, right? The one gift can't say, I'm more important than you are. And that's not that true at all. And Paul says we bestow more honor on the so-called lesser gifts. That's chapter 12. In chapter 14, we read of the abuses of spiritual gifts in Corinth. Um, as they gathered together, Paul heard. This wouldn't happen when Paul was there. But Paul had discovered from someone else that when they gathered and had their services that people were talking over one another. They were interrupting one another. They uh, assumed that some of them assumed they had better gifts and needed to be heard more than others. Gifts of tongues, gifts of prophecy, gifts of knowledge and so on. And you know, people really thought that these gifts were given to them so that they could elevate themselves. And so we find that in Corinth, the spiritual gifts became a vehicle for uh, self-interest, for self-promotion. Imagine such a thing. Using God's gifts to promote self. In Corinth, people wanted to be favored. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be looked up to. They wanted to be admired. As I'm reading this, really listening to, this book on Apollo 11 that I've mentioned multiple times, I'm almost done with it, and then you'll stop hearing about it, as you'll hear more about my next book, whatever I'm listening to. 
is that these three men were extremely famous in 1969 and the years following. This is the Apollo 11 team from left to right, Neil Armstrong. Uh, Mike Collins is in the middle, and Buzz Aldrin is on your right. And, and, And these guys became rock stars basically overnight. Uh, what's amazing about that is that they are not, they didn't set out to be rock stars. They're engineers, they're pilots, they're test pilots who are incredibly smart engineers. And you know what they really want to do with their lives? Engineer stuff. And they want to fly stuff. And that's all they really want to do. Uh, in interviewing them afterwards, especially uh, Mike Collins, Mike Collins had the easiest afterlife. I say it really was. After the moon was an afterlife. Uh, their lives changed so much in ways that they couldn't possibly have fathomed. And that's because Mike Collins didn't go to the moon. He was in uh, Columbia, the, mod, the, the thing that orbit, orbited the moon. And so he had the best afterlife. Uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became superstars, and their lives after Apollo were filled with unhappiness, divorce, both of them divorced, and in Aldrin's case, alcoholism, very severe alcoholism, which he later recovered from, as you should know. Uh, And imagine that this is what people are after. Right? This is what the Corinthians were after. They wanted fame. They wanted self-promotion. They wanted admiration. But the people who want that have not a clue what they're after. The people who want it do not know that fame and self-promotion gives us nothing because it worships self. And what is my value? The only thing valuable in this world is God who made it. The only thing valuable, the only one valuable is God, the Son, who came and lived here. And it's He that has given us our value. To want self-promotion is to want what those guys experienced afterwards. But they experienced it to the nth degree. But there's another side to this, a side that we often fail to see. See, the astronauts wanted to go back to work, but NASA wouldn't let them. I mean, they could have desk jobs, but to go back into space, uh uh-uh. And why? What if they died? Now, of course, the astronauts would have been like, well, so what if we died? We took that chance when we went the first time. We're willing to take the chance again. But you see, NASA and the government wanted them for PR. They were public relations gold mines, and they were not allowed to go back to work. You see, uh, a, a just government would have said, guys, your PR has been great, and we thank you very much for your service, but what do you want to do? You know, the world's your oyster. You want to go back into space? You want to fly airplanes, uh, you know, at the seat of your pants? What do you want to do? But we didn't give them that option. And the public didn't give them that option either. What the public wanted was speech after speech after speech after speech. Mike Collins in one interview said, uh, they asked us over 
Now, I'm not exaggerating. When I heard this, I played it back and I counted. I think he said seven times. They asked us over and 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 over again. What was the future going to hold? That's the people looked up to these. They, and, and so what does this tell us? It's another part of fame or self-aggrandizement or self-centeredness that uh, we often overlook. And that's the fact that people want their heroes the way that they want them. And funny, there's only one real hero in this world who is Jesus Christ. And people want him the way that they want him. And he's not what people want, generally. Right? He's not even what the disciples wanted. And Peter said, I forbid you go to Jerusalem after Jesus told him that he was going to die. You know, it's not what they wanted. They didn't want him to die, but they didn't understand. And a lot of people, I mean, too many people don't understand. And it turns out the Corinthians just wanted their heroes the way they wanted them, and they didn't all agree on who the great hero was. So some followed Paul, some followed Apollo, some followed... um, not Apollo, Apollo, Apollos. <laughs> Not the the spaceship. That wasn't that wasn't there yet. That's funny how they have the same name. Um, and some followed Peter, and some followed Christ, and they bickered with one another. And the Corinthians never had an impact on the world. They didn't. A great church they could have been. We find out Paul Paul's first letter. There's a second letter that he wrote that got lost somewhere. We know that from 2 Corinthians, that, and he made a surprise visit to them. He visited them three times, and even in the second, what we call 2 Corinthians, which is probably the third or fourth letter that he wrote to them, we see that they didn't really still get it all that much. And then in much later, not much later on, but a couple decades later, Clement writes a letter to the Corinthians outside the Bible. And in that letter, he tells the Corinthians that it's be, they be all become aware that the Corinthians have no love and they're bickering with one another. They're doing the same exact thing. And I think Clement's letter is in like 95 A.D. or something like that. Some 40 years after Paul writes to them, they're doing the same thing. Why did the Corinthians not have an impact? Because they weren't unified. They weren't unified in love. So the lesson here is, do we worship self? Or do we worship others? Or do we worship God alone? And there's only one option there. We must worship God alone. So God gives, and God gives his agape love, one of his greatest gifts. I mean, it really, God is love, so it's, it's him. It's, agape is a part of eternal life. We've been given, to, given in that salvation. It's Christ. So agape, which... By the way, as the famous uh, passage here in 1 Corinthians 13, the last line in the chapter 13, 13 is there's now, Paul says, there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And the reason why the greatest of these is love is because faith and hope are temporary. We don't need faith when we're seeing Christ face to face in heaven. We don't need hope anymore because we hope for what we do not see. And when we're in heaven, when the eternal comes and the perfect comes and we're a part of it, we're not going to need that hope. But love will go on. 
because it is God. And that's why love is the greatest. It's eternal. So as we stated, in the middle of the instruction on gifts and the abuses of gifts, which is agape love, chapter 13 begins with a somewhat sarcastic look at gifts. We have spiritual gifts in chapter 12, the abuse of spiritual gifts in chapter 14. And now look at 13.1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So we aren't really sure what he means here by the tongues of angels, but it could mean that he, he means... Anyway... What matters is it's the gift. There, there is a gift of tongues. Whether it sounded like angels talking or not, we don't know. But um, the point is, is that there is a gift of tongues. And if those who have that gift don't have love, then they're nothing more than noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and those are all related there, right? The gift of prophecy was to give God's truth uh, in the early church, know all mysteries, you know, it's knowledge of God, all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to move mountains, meaning that my faith is so strong, I'll believe I can do anything, but I don't have love, he says I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, that could be referred to a gift of giving. And if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. So what we have repeated here over and over is a formula. If I do not have X, but I do have, sorry, I just messed that up. If I do have X, but I do not have love, then I am Y. And so the X is, I don't, if I have gifts. Now, these, this could, we don't have to be specific. Paul is, Paul is making a point here. So it's not just about tongues and prophecy and knowledge and martyrdom. It's about all things that we have as gifts. By the way, they're temporary. You know, gifts like eternal life, righteousness, salvation, those are eternal, of course. But we can discern as believer, believers what gifts we have that are temporary. And there's a great many of them. And it ranges. There's a great range. Uh, the gifts of time. Time is a temporary thing. There's no time really in eternity. It's forever. Uh, money. Time, money. And, and in what a case that Paul has to make in 1 Corinthians for food. Obviously, food is a temporary thing. We're not going to really need it in heaven. However, uh, there's that ranges from that to some more important things, like, say, the gift of apostleship. Paul has the gift of apostleship, but he's not going to be an apostle forever. His Even his gift, which is probably the greatest gift in the church, as he writes half the New Testament and builds, really lays the foundation of the beginning church, uh, is a temporary matter. What if Paul says, I've got to build churches. I don't have time for love. He's not going to be a very good church builder. He says, I've got to get busy writing the New Testament. I don't have time to love you. Leave me alone. I've got to write. He's not going to be very good at writing the New Testament. 
And we have our gifts, temporal, temporary gifts, and we worship them. Like people, like alcohol, drugs, sex, uh, all kinds of desires, whether it's fame or time or uh, things or people or to fall in love or get a relationship or not be lonely anymore and on and on and on. The things that people want that they'll give their whole soul for. And there's that whole that, uh, what's the guy who wrote that, uh, where the guy sells his soul to the devil. Um, to become great, right? You know, I want to be the most famous of the famous and I'll sell my soul to the devil for it. That is a temporary matter. And what Paul is pointing out here in 1 Corinthians is that we dare not, even our spiritual gifts, our places in the body of Christ now, even our work of service to others now here in time, it's temporary. Because if I do that work, Say I'm working in the church. Say, like me, I'm a pastor of the church. And I say, I've got to do my work. If I do it without love, without agape, I'm nothing but that noisy gong. And we know that, what you know, to have agape love, we've got to give our whole lives. The center of our lives must no longer be us. And as we learn from the astronauts and the apostles, they must not be another person. The center of our lives must not be another person, and they must not be us. The center of our lives must be Jesus Christ, the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so the why here, so if I do have gifts, but I don't have love, uh, as Paul says, I'm, I'm noise, I'm nothing, and I'm unprofitable. So Paul makes that grand case in this letter for us to put the temporary things in their proper place. Some of them are more important than others, but they must be in their proper place. We must be careful about that too. That's why, you know, the spiritual life takes wisdom. I've got to put them in their proper place. If I put, say, food above, uh, I don't know, my marriage, that sounds silly, but, you know, I, I could put, say, I, you know, I'm a guy and uh, I, I put my hobbies above my marriage. I think my priorities are a little topsy-turvy, both of which are temporary. Right? So I say, well, I worship God, and then I don't support my family, because family's temporary, and I spend all my money on myself, which is temporary, and money's temporary. Uh, so I'm taking all the temporary things, and I'm not really actually using them right. And I say I worship God, but God is teaching me how to order my life. You know, the scripture does that. And so we prioritize. But one thing we must never do is take anything temporary and put it above God. Like marriage, like children. Children are temporary. Uh, Like family, like money, like time, all the way down to food and water. All must be in their proper place. And so, this is what agape gives us. So, it's one of the great benefits here, which is, comes to me now that I'm saying it, is that agape does teach us to order our lives, to get our priorities right, which would make us organized and fruitful. Agape, then, has others, is an other-centered concern. 
and at times it's expressed at great personal cost. Because whatever it costs me is a temporary thing. But agape itself is eternal. And that's how Paul Paul ends his hymn in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, says love in New American Standard says love never fails. Uh, and what he means there is not that every relationship is going to work out. What he means is that love is eternal. The context shows that completely. That love is a part of the eternal thing, the kingdom of God, the returning Christ. It's a part of heaven. It's a part of eternity. It's part of the past. It is God. So the things, if I'm going to agape love someone, the things that I'm going to have to at time sacrifice are always temporal. And so if I'm a believer who understands that, then the sacrifice of the temporal thing, although I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but the conclusion in my soul that it must be sacrificed should be a no-brainer. Whether I do it or not is the next step. But my understanding of what is eternal and what is temporary uh, has to be set properly. And then I'll be able to do it. So, it is a new commandment to love as Christ loves. It's fitting, as I opened with, that the word agape is rarely used before the New Testament. And it's not that agape love is alien to the Old Testament concept of love of God and neighbor, but that it is higher, far higher uh, in terms of what it is. And that's because agape is found in the perfectly fitting, the life of the Savior, the Son of God. Uh, the New Testament, and so Jesus said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. You agape one another as I do to you. And that's a new commandment, John 13, 34. So the Christian is to show his master's love to believer and non-believer alike. Uh, <clears throat> and when we gather together, our love is to be most clearly seen. Agape love should be most clearly seen in the local church. And as Jesus said, if, they, if you love one another, the world will know you're my disciples. And so, you know, that we, um, when we do that, we are lights to the world. Because agape, again, is not of this world. It's not the human love, it's agape love. And so when people see it, and they're not going to see it all the time, but when they do see it, what they're seeing is God himself. And that's God in you, shining forth through you. And when we're together and people see that we love one another with agape love, that the people know that we're Christ's disciples. And this is precisely where the Corinthians failed. And they were completely convinced that they were doing awesome. It's not that they knew that they were doing, they should have known that they were doing wrong and at least, you know, admit they're doing wrong and continue to do wrong, uh, but they actually believed that they were doing wonderfully well. So Paul starts out this passage uh, in uh, the right at the end of chapter 12, as you can see there, he says, I will show you a more excellent way, after he talks about spiritual gifts and the fact that uh, some are greater than others, and that we should all desire the greatest gifts. <clears throat> and we talked about prior what he means by that. 
that when he says that we should desire the greater gifts, we're desiring that which serves others. The greatness of spiritual gifts is its service or their service to others. And then he says, I'll show you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way is love. Now, love is not going to give you what you want. That's Eros love. That's human love. Human love is always after what it wants. Uh, people will do good to others to get even some, to get something like a, a satisfied conscience. Uh, people will do good to others so that they'll love them in return. There's all kinds of ways in which Eros very subtly and sometimes, oftentimes, very not subtly, uh, seeks what it wants. But agape never seeks what it wants. But what agape is going to give you is the Trinity. Love is not going to give you what you want. It is going to give you the Trinity. That's a far better deal. So... um, It's right here where, as I said, human love fails, which is really eros love. Most people think that eros means erotic or sexual love. It it means way more than that. Eros love, used by the Greeks, was a way in which a person climbed to heaven on their own because they loved themselves, basically. Uh, It's it's the, I'll do good if it's going to promote me in the end. Or give me what I want in the end. And Agape knows nothing of this. And so that's why we want to protect ourselves. Eros promises God. You see, Agape promises God and it delivers. Eros promises God and also promises what you want. And those two things can't happen. Because if that were true, you would have to be valuable. You would have to be worthy. If in the end you get what you desire, all the things that you desire, then it is you that is really valuable. And are we? I mean, who really gets glorified in the end of it all? Is it any one of us who get glorified? Now, we are glorified, but we're not the ones that receive glory. Only the Lord. Those beautiful passages in Revelation 4 and 5 where all the angels, the elders, the 24 elders, and those weird creatures that are around the throne are bowing down. They're worshiping the Lord and they say, Worthy are you, O Lord. Not anyone else but Him. And it's because that agape glorifies God alone that we still think we have to protect ourselves in some way. Right? Remember we, uh, when we studied that love is not provoked. It means that, you know, why are we not provoked? It means to be poked by something that hurts our soul, whether it's an insult or someone didn't give us what we wanted or acknowledge what we wanted them to acknowledge. That uh, The reason why we're not provoked is because self isn't even in the picture. It's not there to be provoked. It's not there to be poked. But we, therefore, we think we have to protect ourselves. But agape frees us from that prison. Again, love is not provoked because we're completely out of the picture. And so who's going to take care of us? And that's a silly question. 1 Corinthians 2.9 in the New Living Translation. 
No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mi- and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. God is going to take perfectly good care of you. Not just care, but blessing beyond what you've ever imagined. And this is not a tit-for-tat thing. That is life with God. That's what it is. Life with God is always that. It never has not been that. That's you in His presence, enjoying His presence, worshiping Him, and forgetting about this fallen self that, and all its desires. That is that life. That's the life of agape. So, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Those are the two positive things. Love is. And then we have, um, is it eight? Yeah, eight negatives. Is not jealous, does not brag. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly or in an ill-mannered way, does not seek its own, which really means does not seek itself, is not provoked, is not in a poke, does not take into account a wrong suffered, doesn't keep tabs, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, and that means in another, not in general, but that means that if someone is caught in unrighteousness, that you're not longing and happy to smash them, but rejoices with the truth. Now, patience and kindness several times are connected in the Scripture as qualities of God. Both patience and kindness are fruit of the Spirit, and in believers are qualities that are produced by the Holy Spirit. And that's going to come up here in a minute. We do not originate this. We do not originate agape love. We do not just like we don't originate our salvation, we don't originate love in ourselves. Some have taken that to mean like your first thought is, well, I don't have to do anything. That's not what I said. What I said is you didn't originate it. There's plenty to do. There's faith that needs to be applied. There's courage to reach out. There's energy and will to do. We must do all those things. But we still didn't originate it. Now, the following, so the first two, uh, patience and kindness, we see those together quite a bit in the New Testament. And then we have these eight negative ones. And we find that in the letter, 1 Corinthians, that these were seen in these people, in this church. Uh, they were jealous, 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. They were proud, 1 Corinthians 4.7. Puffed up, 8.1. Ill-mannered. 1440, self-seeking, 1024, provocable. They were taking each other to court. They were so provocable for, like, Judge Judy stuff. Provocable, 6-1, keeping counts of wrong, chapter 1, 10, and 11, and rejoicing in unrighteousness, chapter 6, verse 7. And some other passages that that, uh, overlap these as well. And so, uh, you know, to the Corinthians we see a group of saints, a group of believers, as Paul addresses them as such, and they're not doing agape. They're not doing it. Maybe there are some that are, but for the most part, they're not. And therefore, they are not living. They are not doing what God would have them do. 
And that it's a church. They're believers. They're saints, as Paul calls them. And so we must. You know, these are, these are the negative things. We must not be this. Agape is not this. And then we have what now Paul turns to, the fact that love can do anything. Anything that is needed to bear, to believe. Bear means support, to support, to believe, to hope, and to endure for another. And so in verse 7, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The word all things in Greek, panta, shows up four times. Panta, 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 panta. Uh, and it sticks out, and it refers to the fact, panta is first, so it's panta, and then the verb stego, panta, and then the verb pastuo, and it emphasizes the all things part. And that emphasizes the fact, it's not here saying what love can do, but emphasizing the fact that there isn't anything love can't do. That is necessary. doesn't mean... You know, I can uh, be something that God doesn't want me to be. What it means is, is that I can do all things that God wants me to do. There's no limits to what agape can do. So as we uh, put it in the negative, which states the passage, I think, a little more clearly, love never tires of support. We spent two classes on that first one, uh, and I think that's sufficient. And now we move to the next one, is that love never loses faith never exhausts hope and never gives up. And so we'll take the last two in turn this week and uh, that will pretty much end our work on agape right here. Never loses faith. As we saw with the first one, uh, it's support. Uh, that uh, Agape never tires of supporting. Agape is always, you know, it, it, the word stego means to hold up a roof and we're, we're holding up whatever is necessary. That's up to us to discover as we, as we saw. So the roof, we're putting a roof over someone. We're helping them. We're supporting them. We're the supports to the roof. Now, they, if they burn that roof down, we put up another one. If they burn it down and spit on it and stomp on it, we put up another one. If they cut it down and throw it out, you know, I don't know. If they dig a hole and bury it, whatever. Whatever they do to that roof, we keep putting them back up. Whatever they need. Now, there is a time for separation as God allows. We have to be very careful about that because it's very easy to say, ah, it's time to separate. You're going to be accountable to God for that, not, not to any pastor who teaches on separation. Which, you know, I, don't, I would never teach a doctrine like that because then people would, I know, people would be listening, being like waiting for that that out, <laughs> you know, and I'd probably say something wrong, and then they'd be like, ah, there it is. You know, when Colonel Theme first, I heard this, I, I, I don't, I wasn't an experience of this, but when Colonel Theme first started teaching on right man, right woman, all of a sudden divorces went up in his church, because people were like, well, you're not my right man, so adios, and that's not what it was ever meant to be, but, you know, people are always looking for an out. We must be very careful about that. Now, faith here does not at all mean, believes all things, does not at all mean that I believe the best about everybody. That's how it's been interpreted by some. And it's, it's actually 
you know, uh, it's kind of a colloquial saying, and therefore, you know, it kind of sounds right to our ears, I think, too. And it's not exact, it's not at all what Paul is saying. Uh, there's definitely some truth to this statement that you should believe the best about somebody, but not at the loss of your intelligence. God teaches us to be wise. If a believer or someone leaves no doubt as to their lack of character or to their, their sinfulness or their sinful lives uh, or their addictions or so on, and you see them, you're not to kid yourself that they are people of character. If someone is not a person of character, you say, well, you know, I, I'm going to trust you when you're, on, you're not trustworthy. That's just being silly. That's not what this means. I wouldn't entrust a kid with a lot of money or with, I don't know, a stick of dynamite. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to entrust a, someone who cannot handle something. In fact, I'm hurting them more than I'm helping them. So God doesn't tell us to lose all our intelligence. What he means here is that our faith is in the fact that agape will do good. Now, whether that person responds to it or they don't, that's not up to me. That's up to them and God. But agape, as I keep building that roof, as I keep enduring, as I keep in hope and faith here are, are, are very well connected because hope looks to the future. And as I'm loving them with agape, my faith, this is why it believes all things, God can do miracles. God does the impossible. And so my, my loving of them in whatever way, the work I do, the service, the words, the prayer, all of it, something good's going to come out of this. It may be just to me. It may be to both of us. It may be to someone who's watching it. I don't know. That's up to God, not up to me. But when you love with God's love, you cannot lose. I mean, God loved the whole world, and a lot of people rejected him. Did God lose out? Is God at a loss? Is he at a minus? No, he's not. But I don't understand how. I don't understand that. Nobody does. But when you love with agape, you don't lose. And so that's what this means. Believes means that you never lose faith that God is going to accomplish good through our agape love. Simple as that. And that, in the context of Corinthians, it makes perfect sense. person may spit in my face and leave me and never come back. If they do come back, I'm going to love them just the same. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to do good to them. I'm going to pray to them, even if they're my enemies. This is what Jesus said. He told us, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. And he said, if you're persecuted for my name's sake, you are blessed. When God says you're blessed... That is a very, very good thing. Now, how that manifests itself, that's not up to us to know. So, again, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. If the person is going to respond uh, in any other way than negatively. But what we do know is that God's agape love is at work. And when God's at work, good things are going to happen somewhere, somehow. That's faith. So, when I'm tired of doing it, I've built the roof over this person's head five times, ten times, and they've burned it down ten times. 
uh, I'm going to continue to pray for them, to support them uh, in whatever way that I see that God wills me to do. And faith says, I, I must do this. You know, because I am, I have eternal life, and eternal life is agape love. I'm in Christ, and Christ is agape love. This word embodied his life. I am the child of God, and the child must act like the father. The father has loved agape the whole world. Uh, the unbeliever, his enemies, which all of us were, I'm going to keep doing the same. Faith says I am going to keep doing this no matter what. And the flesh is going to say, stop. It's not working. It's not worth it. That's what the flesh, the flesh really gets us with. It's not worth it. And that's why it believes all things. So we don't believe obvious lies about another person. That's believing a fantasy. That's not what it means. It, we, <clears throat> we know reality and we are wise. But the re- this reality, or the truth of this word here, is that we believe that God is the God of possibilities, that God is a God of miracles, that God is a God of redemption. He redeemed me and forgave me and did the impossible for me. If you're a believer who's getting into the promised land and maturing, you're a complete miracle. And if God has done that for you, he can do it for anybody. So we let God do the calculating. God will lead it if when it's time to, there will be, uh, for some, a time to stop, a time to separate, a time to where, where its love turns into kind of a tough love. If that has to happen, God is the one who's going to reveal it to us. And that we must understand, again, in the manner of that, like our faith in Christ, like our redemption or the gospel, the gospel isn't ours, our redemption isn't ours, that God initiated our relationship with him, and God has initiated this agape love in us. It's not our love. We should never treat it as if it's ours. It's God's love. And so we let God do the calculating, and he'll reveal to us if it's time to separate from someone. This means that we're going to Agape love with a faith that never wavers. They spit at us or they react marvelously. We're going to believe that our agape is going to accomplish good. And in that way, when, in what way, I mean, in what way, when or how or who, only God knows. I know that I've got to follow the Lord. A great example of this is David dealing with Saul. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 24. It's helpful to see a biblical example of this. And while this example would touch on many aspects of what we're learning about agape, uh, and especially the, uh, the waiting part, you know, love is patient. And uh, we're going to see David. David's dealing with King Saul. Now, as probably you know, King Saul got extremely jealous of David. David was hugely successful as a military commander and, and with the people. And David was anointed by Samuel as a young man. So David is anointed as king of Israel. 
but Saul is still the sitting reigning king. And Saul gets so jealous of David that he sought David to kill him for years. And David is fleeing in the wilderness, going from place to place, hiding, um, fleeing, hiding, kind of like a wild animal in the wilderness. And his life is at times miserable and scary, meaning David's, as he's fleeing from Saul. Now, there's this an instance here in chapter 24 where Saul goes into a cave. It's probably that he goes in to take a nap. Some think he went in to relieve himself of, uh, you know, to like go to the bathroom. But I find that hard to believe that David would be able to sneak up on him and cut a piece of his robe. So that's what David does. David has his dagger. He knows that Saul is there. He goes in there. He could have killed him. So Saul's probably asleep. He's probably fast asleep. It's so easy to kill him. David's killed hundreds and hundreds of people. So easy to kill him, but instead just cuts a piece off of his robe and doesn't kill him. David understands that Saul is wrong and evil. It's clear. It's very clear. Saul is wrong and evil. What if David kills him? His problems are over. Right? He's not, he doesn't have to flee in the wilderness anymore. He can take the throne by force. He has his own little army, but they're an amazing army. And he could have taken the throne. But by faith, he knows not to do it. He waits and he believes that this is the right course. So he's actually, and Saul is really his enemy, his sworn enemy. So instead of fighting against his enemy... He's going to love his enemy. Look at verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. That's all. Saul gets up from his nap and starts heading out. David calls out to him, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you. His men that were with him encouraged David to kill him. Some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. He's anointed king. Now my father, see, indeed see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge you, avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. You see, what does David do here? As he's still serving, he bows down to him and calls him father, calls him Lord and King. He's put the whole matter in the Lord's hand. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. What a simple and true proverb. <laughs> it's pretty simple. If you're wicked, what's going to come forth from you? Wickedness. You know, Jesus said something very similar. The bad tree produces bad fruit. 
So what did Jesus say? Just wait and you'll see it. If there's bad fruit, if it's a bad tree, just wait, you'll see it. Don't deny the fact that it's a bad tree. But even if it is a bad tree, you must love that tree. Like I love that tree. Like I loved you. You must. And if you do so, here's my promise to you. If you do so, what eye hasn't seen, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what I've prepared for you. You love like I love, you walk with me. You love like I love, you live with me. You love like I love, you think with me. You walk with me, you live with me. I and my Father build our house with you. You have no idea how good that is. I find it amazing that, you know, I've been using getting into the promised land as our journey here to learn what agape is. We grab, if we learn it and grab hold of it by faith, we have the power of the Holy Spirit now to manifest it. If we do, we enter into the land of milk and honey. You know what's there in the land of milk and honey? What's there? The Lord. That's it. When Israel went in there, God said, you're going to chase them all out, and then I'm going to be with you. In the New Covenant, The main staple of the new covenant is that I will tabernacle or dwell amongst my people. It's just you. It's going to be you and me. And here in the human race, we're wondering when we get to where we're going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? (laughs) And we want to do. So we say, well, when we get to where we're going, what we're going to do? And then we're done doing that. We're going to get somewhere else. And what are we going to do there? And then we're going to get somewhere else. And what are we going to do there? It's like that awful vacation with your family. That's we got to go to this place to do that and this place to do that. And then I'm like exhausted. I just want to go home. <laughs> I don't like those vacations. What are we going to do? And I talked about that on Sunday. Is God's not... You know, we've got a lot to do. So did Israel in the Promised Land and her farming community. There's a lot to do. Sometimes they'd have to chase away enemies and fight. There's things to do here on earth in our lives. But ultimately, what is the blessing of life? And it's nothing more than this. It's astounding to me. The presence of God. You and Him. What's eternity? People say, well, what are we going to do in eternity? Again, you're all occupied with what you're going to do. You know, just do what your hand finds to do. But, you know, what is eternity? Flying around on clouds, strumming our harps, just bored out of our skulls. It's been a million years. I'm already a master at this harp. What am I going to do now? It's all about doing. When God, you know, what is God? When he said, what is his name? What does his name mean? To Moses, he said, I am that what I am. I am what I am. As David says here, I put the whole thing in the Lord's hands. I am not going to kill you. Let the Lord decide between me and you. But I follow him. You follow the Lord, you're with the Lord. It's his presence. This is the blessing of agape love. It believes all things because I'm with the Father.
So our believing, last point, all things comes from our strong faith in the Lord. And we could it'd be an easy springboard point here to jump back into the fear of the Lord, which we talked about earlier. But um, you know that's where our faith comes from. Is you know the fear of the Lord is this almighty, massive, all-powerful God is my Father, and I am accountable to Him. And I fear not pleasing Him. I fear not doing what He has called me to do. This propels you forward. It's a motivation. Both fear and love of the Lord motivate us. And this, both together, produce our strong faith. And with that strong faith, when they burnt down the roof we built over them for a, a hundred times, we know that agape is going to do good, and so we're going to do it. And that is the that is the meaning of love believes all things. Again, it's not <clears throat> believing the best about someone that isn't true. It's believing that agape can do anything and that we rest and wait on the fact that God will. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the blessing of love. Thank you that through love... We can do what you called us to do, and may you, Father, bless us mightily by strength of your word and strength of your spirit to truly comprehend what your agape love is and to live that love now uh, so that we never forget it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.